Listener Production. I think if it's inevitable, we're all going to catch it. I'd rather get it out of the way now, to be honest. Obviously, it's putting a stop to our normal way of life, and I think the sooner we can kind of get it out of the way and move on to back to some normality, it's just going to make things a lot easier down the track. That's David, not his real name. He's from Queensland, and he wants to catch COVID at a time of his choosing. I'm not actively trying to get some cosy up behind people and rub up against people unnecessarily. That sounds a bit strange, but no, I think when I'm... (laughs) Previously, wouldn't have gone to active, yeah, I suppose, or, or highly, highly populated places, sporting events, and I guess shopping centres. Now, I'm, I, I'm not even considering that. I'm just going about my daily life as much as I can, as normally as I can, or how I used to be able to. And I suppose, yeah, just if it happens, it happens. It sounds like it's a pretty active strain, and yeah, we're all going to catch it at some point. I suppose I've just removed some of the breakers that used to be in place that uh, help me avoid catching it. Wow, that's some interesting choices David's making there, Jen. He's kind of doing the opposite of you. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying not to catch COVID. There are people out there, clearly, not just David, but people that I'm reading about who are going to COVID parties where everyone's positive in the hope that they catch it now and not later. And when you have the health minister of Australia's largest state saying this... Everybody in New South Wales is probably going to get Omicron at some stage. Everybody in Australia will get Omicron. You can't really blame people who want to choose their own timing for what sounds like or is made to sound like the inevitable. So in this briefing, COVID chasers. You're going to meet people who are trying to catch COVID or at least want to and you'll get some expert advice on why that is unwise to put it mildly. If you can avoid getting COVID, that's the right thing to do. Doing everything you can to avoid it doesn't actually promise you that you won't have it but it's absolutely still the way to go. That's our briefing in just a moment. First, here are today's headlines. It is Friday, the 21st of January. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Jan Fran. We're starting with big news out of WA. The state has backtracked on its February 5th reopening plan because of the Omicron variant. The Premier Mark McGowan announced last night that they want to get their third dose rate to 80 or 90% before they reopen. I understand exactly what this means for many people who are hoping to reunite without any restrictions. But from February 5, there are enhanced compassionate exemptions. Yeah, so even people arriving on those compassionate grounds will still need to isolate for 14 days. There was supposed to be about 6,000 Australians from interstate travelling to WA on February 5th, so clearly people wanting to see their loved ones. It could be months, though, before those booster rates hits that, well, effectively moving target. We don't really know what it is yet. WA's current booster rate is sitting at 25.8%. McGowan says he wants it up near 80 or 90. So that could take some time. Yeah, that's going to be devastating for so many people who've waited so long to finally cross that border and everyone's still going to have to go into quarantine if they get their entrance approved. I mean, I do understand that the game has certainly changed because of Omicron since they made that commitment to February 5, but this close to completely renege on it and to not even set a clear target, 80 or or maybe Mm. 90%, it sort of, you know, really doesn't give anyone any certainty about their future. Yeah, well, we know that a new date for reopening is going to be considered over the next month, but again, that doesn't really give anyone any certainty either. 
And the Novavax COVID vaccine has received provisional approval from the Therapeutic Goods Administration. Our dream is that we might turn our 95% up to 97 or 98% in this country. Who knows? So that's John Scarrett from the TGA. I don't know, Jen, I don't think the last 5% of people were waiting for a fourth vaccine to suddenly go, oh, now I'll get it. Um, Anyway, Mm. it's an interesting one, the Novavax vaccine. It's different to the others. It's different to the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. And it isn't a a transviral vaccine like AstraZeneca. It's actually a protein-based vaccine. So it includes pieces of the virus, but not the entire germ. So when a person um, is vaccinated with it, their body uh, realises that the protein um, should not be there. In this case, that's the COVID spike protein and creates antibodies to fight it. Look, it could be possible that there are some people that are waiting for this particular version of a vaccine to hit our shores. It might persuade some people. We know that it has an efficacy rate of more than 90% against symptomatic infection. Um, The TGA has also provisionally approved two antiviral pills to help combat COVID with the government ordering 800,000 doses from Pfizer and Merck and they're expected to arrive in the coming weeks. To be prescribed by uh, GPs or by hospitals and they help people who have contracted the disease and are most at risk of progressing to serious illness. That's the Health Minister, Greg Hunt. To Tonga now, where communications have finally started coming back. Um, There are first-hand accounts now of Saturday's explosion that are coming to light. The first explosion happened ringing. Our ears were ringing. Um, We couldn't even hear each other. So all we do with mimically pointing to our families, get up, get ready to run. Yeah, so intense. And we haven't been able to hear these stories because they've been cut off. That was journalist Marianne Cupo speaking to the ABC. Uh, the UN estimates 80,000 people have been impacted, which is more than 80% of the country's population. Yeah, so we've got two RAAF flights that have touched down in Tonga. They're bringing water, um, helping to build shelter. They're bringing supplies and food. And uh, there's also ships that are set to arrive from Australia and New Zealand today. And there was an incredible story Tom, of a Tongan man who was washed away by the tsunami but then swam between islands for more than 24 hours. He is a disabled carpenter um, and he said that he floated or swam between these uninhibited islands until he finally made it to the main island, which is a total distance of 13 kilometres, which is huge and and an extraordinary what an absolute feat. hero i know what i swim 500 meters hero. and i'm like i'm done i'm out, i'm getting out of this heated 25 meter pool <laughs> uh, that's it and the federal court has revealed why it rejected novak djokovic's appeal the three judges say it was not irrational or illogical for alex hawk to be concerned that the tennis champion's presence in the country could encourage anti-vax protests and sentiment So they say that an iconic world tennis star may influence people of all ages, especially the young and impressionable, to emulate him. Now, Novak Djokovic is actually considering suing the Australian government for more than $6 million due to what he says is ill treatment. Meanwhile, Kelly Slater, the surfer, um, hasn't revealed if he's had the jab. And so if he is still unvaccinated, he won't be able to attend uh, this year's World Surfing Championships here in Australia in May. So that's another one to keep an eye on. And speaking of tennis, Jan, Nick Kyrgios put on a big show again uh, last night in the second round, mm-hmm. but ultimately lost to Daniil Medvedev, the second seed, who's a very tough competitor. But the crowd was quite interesting and so bad, in fact, for Medvedev that he lashed out at them after the match. Have a listen to this. 
Then I have a breakpoint second serve and people are cheering like you already made a double fault. And I mean, that's that's just disappointing because it's not everybody who is doing it, but those who are doing it probably have a low IQ. Ouch. Low IQ, what a burn. <laughs> yeah, I think the flair and the chaos of Kyrgios does incite some pretty raucous behaviour from um, some parts of the tennis community. But I also think that's what people love about the whole Kyrgios spectacle. Yeah, look, I, I think it, it, it got to Nick as well when he was playing yesterday because I, I really, I mean, I was I was rooting for Nick. I was like, come on, baby, you can do it. So I tried to stay up as much as possible. But as you know, we've got to be up very early for this podcast. So I didn't end up finishing the match. But mm. there was a bit in there where I think even Nick was like, come on, guys, I need to serve. <laughs> Don't yell and cheer and scream while I'm in the middle of my serve. <laughs> But he loves it. He he razzes up the fans, and I think it's a it's probably a really great atmosphere being there. But yeah, if you were his opponent, you wouldn't be too happy. And the former Pope Benedict uh, has been accused of failing to act in four child sex abuse cases while he was an Archbishop of Munich. We have come to the conclusion that the then Archbishop Cardinal Ratzinger is to be accused of misconduct in the cases of sexual abuse. That was Munich lawyer Martin Posch there. Pope Benedict, then called Joseph Ratzinger, held the position of Archbishop of Munich from 1977 to 1982. Um, he has denied all of the accusations, we should say. Yeah, so these revelations come out of a report commissioned by the Archdiocese, which has revealed there were at least 497 victims of abuse, mainly young males, between the years of 1945 and 2019. Um, the Vatican's issued a statement um, that did not mention the former Pope specifically, but it said it would evaluate the full report and examine its details. Um, Benedict's 94 years old now, uh, and he's been living in the Vatican since he resigned as pontiff in 2013. By the way, it is uh, Friday, of course, so we're getting our briefing quiz underway on Instagram. If you want to test your knowledge of the briefing, um, jump onto our Instagram and have a crack at the quiz. Uh, in just a moment, we're talking about people who actually want to get Omicron. At the top of the show, you heard from David, who is wanting to catch covid to just get it out of the way. Yeah, I know a few people who are thinking like this. One mate who's about to have his 40th, he's invited a whole bunch of people on a weekend away, so he doesn't want to ruin that. Then he's got a big overseas trip. And he's like, look, I just need to get it, to get it out of the way. Yeah, that's a bit like Mel from Melbourne. She's another person who prefers to, as you say, get COVID out of the way, get it at a time of her choosing, rather than leaving it up to chance. I'm getting married on the 1st of April and I still haven't had it. Um, and it just terrifies me that I'm going to get it at the wrong time and it's going to ruin the day. And, you know, they say if most of us are going to get it anyway. Um, like, I mean, I'm triple vaxxed at the moment. I'm probably the peak point where my body will be able to handle it. I figure it's already ruined most of the last couple of years, so why not get it on my own terms and, and not have it ruin me? What lengths are you going to to, to get it? To be honest, I'm kind of uh, all talk at this point. Every time I do a rapid, I'm like praying for that other line to come up. But at the same time, I am aware of the strain on the health system. And I think there's something still in the back of my head that it's kind of not the right thing to do to go get it. Um, so there's still something holding me back. I told my friends if they'd got it, I'd go give them a smooch. But I delivered groceries to my friend at a very reasonable distance the other day. So there is kind of something holding me back actually doing it, despite wanting it so badly. Mel, do you worry about some of the impacts of this, not just on your health, but on the health system in general? 
Yeah, look, I definitely do. And and you hear all kinds of stories about people who are getting on COVID or who are still struggling to recover months afterwards. And I think at the end of the day, I don't want to inflict that kind of harm on myself. And definitely the health system is on my mind. Like I have friends who are nurses and just say it's hell at the moment. And I'd really hate to fear the burden in. So I guess despite wanting to get it, I am kind of holding back doing the actual act of trying to get it. All right, well, let's get an expert opinion on chasing COVID. Um, Professor Catherine Bennett is the Chair of Epidemiology at Deakin University. Catherine, is there a bit of a history of disease chasing? I've read that people before the smallpox vaccine were taking their children to chickenpox parties. Yeah, look, it's one of those things that pre-vaccine, Chickenpox was thought to be a way to manage it, not just because they were going to get it at some point, but actually chickenpox, if you had it as an adult, if you managed to escape it as a kid, had a lot more you know, serious side effects. And so it was a much harder uh, infection to have as an adult than it was as a younger child. So that was the idea of it, was trying to not just bring all your family into alignment and have everyone have chickenpox at the same time so you could manage it. That was part of it. But it was also for some, seen as the best way to do it because you avoided having it in your 30s and having a really nasty illness with it. So it was a little bit different here. You know, we don't have that same issue. We're not saying you can hold off COVID for 40 years so that you're, you know, not going to be in your 60s or 70s when you have it, when it might have more serious side effects. It's slightly different focus with COVID now where people are looking at this as an option and not a good option, but a way of trying to just control when they get the disease so they can work it into their lives and work around it. Catherine, you said that it's not a good option to be chasing COVID and trying to deliberately infect yourself with it. Why not? In the short term, whether someone has an infection, you just don't quite know how they're going to react to it. And some people are clearly thinking they're not vulnerable particularly they're not vaccinated and choosing not to be vaccinated, they can get an infection and end up in ICU. And we know that. We hear those stories. So it's a bit about the immediate illness, not necessarily knowing how it might impact you. But then it's about these other longer-term effects, this ongoing fatigue. You know, people often describe it as a mild illness. And we know for most, thankfully, it doesn't put them in hospital. But everyone I know who's had it says it might be mild, but it's pretty awful. And you can then have these symptoms that last a lot longer. So if you're thinking, I'll have it now because I've got a big event coming up in two weeks' time and that'll make sure I'm able to be there, but you also don't want to then be, you know, having these kind of drawn-out symptoms if you can avoid it, avoid the infection. But if you can't avoid it, why not choose the timing? Yeah, the, the reality is... It's harder to avoid it now, absolutely, because there's so much virus around. And if you're in particular age groups like your 20s, then that's when people are out and about and it's more likely than not to be at those functions you're at. But you can still avoid it. Not everyone does get infected. And so the difference between making it so that you're actually very likely to be infected versus doing what you can reasonably, sensibly, to not be infected can actually make the difference between having an infection or not. So it's not saying don't go anywhere, but it's also saying actually it doesn't make sense to deliberately go and have dinner with people you know have the virus and are infectious. Very different things. And a lot of people have the virus, but we're still talking maybe, you know, 20% of the population, but it's still the minority, even though we all feel like we know someone who has the virus now, it is actually still possible to avoid infection. So, yeah, if you can avoid it, do. If you can't, 
then that's just how luck played out for you. But just being that bit cautious can help and avoiding, you know, deliberately trying to expose yourself, I think is still the absolutely the, the best advice. Catherine, do you think there's been some bad messaging from some of our leaders? I know Brad Hazard, who's the health minister here in New South Wales, point blank said, everybody's going to get COVID. And some of the people that we've been speaking to, they've kind of built on that comment saying, well, if everyone's going to get COVID, as the health minister said, then I may as well get it now. Do our politicians have a bit to answer for here? Good point. You know, messaging is everything. You give a message for a particular reason, trying to enforce how we expect the numbers to rise or how important those precautions are or how important vaccination is. But then you can have these flip side, you know, unintended consequences where people go, well, okay, I'm going to get it anyway, then then why bother avoiding it? I think the message was actually exposure is universal. You know, there's very few places where you could expect to be out and about and you know, go home at the end of the day and not have actually been in the same room as an infectious person now. It's just how it is at the peak of a wave like this. But that still doesn't translate to infection. So I think we just have to pull that message back and say exposure is universal, but what it means for you is manageable. But we also don't want to be at a point where people are mortified of a potential infection. You know, it is about trying to get that balance right. And for most people, it is going to be a very mild infection and there'll be people who are infected and don't even know. So they have no signals, they never test, they'll never know they had the virus, which is good. But at the same time, if we can reduce infections, it just reduces those uncertainties around how it will impact a person, both in the short term and in that longer term, if they're one of those people who just struggles to you know, clear the infection and clear all the symptoms. So what's the data showing with Omicron so far? Um, what proportion of people do have those mild or asymptomatic reactions and, and what proportion have severe symptoms? Yeah, we're still learning. It's really hard to get a measure of asymptomatic people, of course, because unless they've got a prompt now, they're not testing. We're not testing all the contacts of cases and then discovering there's someone who, who has no symptoms but's testing positive. Some have reported that it is more common again. It depends on the data you look at for previous variants, but it could be anywhere from 10 to 30%. And it will depend on things like age and vaccination status. So the vast majority have mild disease, which is the good news. Like over 90%? Yeah, that's right. I mean, very few are going into hospital, for example, which is good news. But at the same time, what is one person's mild disease, you know, is actually awful for the next person. Isn't it more accurate to say for 20 people it might be mild and for one person it might be severe? Oh, absolutely. We're only seeing very low percentages in hospital, if you're calling that severe. But what I'm saying is even in the people who are outside hospital, what is one person's mild illness can actually have someone else really not functioning well at all for a week. Or as I said, someone who might have mild symptoms in the first round of the infection might still be reporting symptoms of fatigue or shortness of breath or those possibly quite mild symptoms, but they're still reporting them you know, more than four weeks later. So it's variable and that's the whole point with an infection. It's really hard to predict exactly how it'll play out in one person. And therefore, you know, we just have to be a little bit careful too by saying Omicron is mild because it does even impact people within that non-hospitalised range differently. So really hard to study long COVID. They're doing some really interesting work in that space. But again, it's just saying it's one of those uncertainties. So again, if you avoid infection, then you don't have to worry about that.
Hey, Catherine, I'm just curious about what the wider impact of chasing COVID might be, because we've talked about, you know, uncertainty to the individual, it might hit you hard, it might not. But what about the kind of impact on society of if everyone gets COVID at the same time? I mean, how does that impact our health system and how does that impact other industries as well? The whole point of trying to slow this through the interventions we have in place, so asking people to wear masks indoors, monitoring people's symptoms and trying to keep people, you know, away from other people if they should be infectious, the density limits, all of that is about slowing it down. And that is the problem if people actually say, well, I don't care anymore and and I'm just going to mix or, in fact, I'm going to deliberately try and get the infection. You're just condensing the time where people are positive at the same time. And that then is a problem because it's taking so many out of our workforce at one go. I know someone who works, you know, in a production area and she said at one point they had 100 people who were responsible for one part of the production. 90 of the 100 were off and so they had to shut down. So, you know, if you've got people actually actively trying to concentrate their infections at a time where you've naturally got high rates of infection in the community, that's when it turns into this much greater level of of disruption or a shadow lockdown almost because you haven't got the staff to keep things operating or you haven't got enough customers out there to keep businesses working. Professor Bennett, what would you say to people who are actively wanting to get COVID right now? Let's say you're a principal, give it to us in a very principally fashion. One of your students says, you know what, I want to get COVID. What would you say to them in that moment? I would say, I think if you can avoid getting COVID, that's the right thing to do. Doing everything you can to avoid it doesn't actually promise you that you won't have it, but it's absolutely still the way to go. It's my intention, even if I'm the last person in Victoria, (laughs) you know, I'm going to try and do everything I can to avoid the infection because, A, I don't want the short-term inconvenience of the infection and I don't want some uncertainty about how it might impact me down the road. So I think that's the message is we don't really fully understand infections. There's just too many questions about it. You're likely to be fine, but if you can avoid it so you don't have that sort of question mark about am I going to be one of the ones that has a more severe reaction to the infection or am I going to be one of the ones that has a longer reaction? So I think that's the thing. If you don't want to answer that question, avoid the infection as much as you can. But recognising, you know, the challenge for all of us at the moment is that it's harder to avoid the infection when there's so much circulating out there. That was Professor Catherine Bennett, Chair of Epidemiology at Deakin Uni in Victoria. Jen, I've got to say, I don't think a lot of those arguments will deter people. Look, one thing that she said that really stuck with me, catching COVID is not inevitable. Exposure might be inevitable, that doesn't mean that catching the disease is inevitable. And when you think about it as not an inevitability, then I think more and more people would like to avoid it. All right, that is it. Uh, Of course, you have the weekend briefing. Back in your ears tomorrow morning with Jamila Rizvi. Jamila, who have you got on? Hello, team. How are you? I am thrilled to be talking to the wonderful Michelle Law this weekend. She is, of course, a woman who has written books, essays, plays and television series. We unpack a whole bunch of things together. We talk about race, we talk about writing and we talk about representation in the literary and art scene in Australia. 
Michelle is one fascinating woman who has got opinions about everything, which means she's my kind of person. This is one not to miss. All right, that's the weekend briefing. Hope you enjoy that. A big thanks to our hardworking team, executive producer Dan Mullins, uh, news producer Eleanor Dengate-Harrison, uh, Brooke Lauthner, our other news producer, uh, Emily Lodge on the socials, and Matt Kuzkari on the editing. Hope you have a great weekend. Look forward to speaking to you Monday. Listener.